morning. It is good to have you here. Those of you in Skagit at our campus there, I hope you've had a great morning here in Bellingham. There's nowhere to go but up from what we just experienced. I'll have to tell you about that later. Uh, that, that's, that's good. Uh, hey, it is good to have you with us, though, in Skagit and uh, with Pastor Brian and, and uh, Jeremy down there this weekend. Also, those of you who are watching online at the live stream, thanks for, for being with us today as we continue in this series on hope. Hope is powerful. Hope is powerful. Hope brings about this, the, the will, the drive. Hope is a motivator, and sometimes to a point where it's not even healthy. I mean, it's hope that's caused this to be the most deadly season on Mount Everest in the history of humanity. Over 11 people died in this last month trying to reach with this hope of reaching the highest point on earth. Uh, Even this hope driving them beyond what wisdom would say should be done or what their capacity or ability should do. But it's also hope that allowed Amanda Eller to survive 17 days lost on a Hawaiian island hoping that someone might find her and that, that she would be rescued. Hope is powerful. And we have hope in lives and hope in, in, in things that we do. Sometimes we don't articulate or name it hope, but it's hope that drives us and pushes us forward. Hope that motivates us and keeps us going on that. It even happens in, 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 in the animal realm. Uh, though I've never been to one, in a, in a greyhound race, and I'm talking about dogs, not buses. But in a greyhound race, it's hope that causes these dogs to run around the track at 40 to 45 miles an hour. And it's not a hope that they'll win the race. And in fact, it's not a hope that they'll better their time from last time. It's not a hope that they'll beat their rival. It's the hope that they can catch a mechanical bunny rabbit. That's the hope. Because the way these these dogs are, are motivated to run at their fastest possible way is that there is a rigged mechanical rabbit that is set to go just a little bit faster than the greyhound can ever run. And so race after race, week after week, year after year, these dogs run with this hope that someday I might grab that bunny, someday I might catch that mechanical rabbit. And it keeps them coming back even though the hope is never fulfilled. Week after week, time after time, they continue to run with everything they've got for all of their life to try and catch this thing. There's only one thing worse than a dog spending his whole life pursuing something that he never catches it. The only thing worse is if he actually does catch the rabbit. And this has happened on occasion. That when one of these dogs happens, sometimes it's because they cut across the track, but on these rare occasions when a dog would actually catch the rabbit, they find that what they've been running toward their whole life, what they'd hoped would fulfill and satisfy, does not deliver. And it's been said that any greyhound that ever catches a rabbit will never race again. Because there's one thing worse than always going after something and never getting it. It's going after something and getting it and finding out how disappointing because it doesn't deliver what you had hoped it would. Quite a metaphor for life, isn't it? And how often in our lives we catch mechanical rabbits that don't fulfill and instead of giving up, we chase a bigger rabbit, a faster rabbit, another rabbit. I don't have to bore you with all the stories and details and statistics of rock stars and movie stars and supermodels and athletes, professional athletes and powerful people, successful people, wealthy people, famous people, people who've achieved all kinds of things that have caught, chased and caught the mechanical rabbits that we all think we're supposed to get. And in the end, they're unfulfilled, they're empty, they're saddened, they're depressed, they're even suicidal because this hope that they had, they got, 
and were disappointed. You know, there was a hope that, that swept through Northwest Washington in 2007. You remember this guy? And you remember this uniform? You remember in 2007 when Kevin Durant was, was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics and there was a new hope in the Northwest? Things were gonna be different. Some of you are looking at me like, no. <laughs> Things were gonna be different. The Sonics were gonna be back on the map. They were gonna be back on top. Our hope was revived, only to have it sold off and sent off to Oklahoma where they don't even brew coffee right. <laughs> and Kevin Durant, this 19-year-old phenom comes to Seattle. And now, for the last 12 years, has had an unbelievable career. Rookie of the year, MVP, 10 times All-Star, NBA championships, ESPN did an article, an interview with Kevin Durant asking why there has in recent years been an uptick in his technical fouls and evictions from games. Interesting article. In the midst of that interview, he made this statement. After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. He caught the mechanical rabbit and it didn't deliver, it disappointed. What he had hoped would have some, some, some meaning and significance seemed to be meaningless in the long run. Psychologists refer to a thing called the Paris Effect. It's, it's a title they came up with in the 80s from a psychologist who lived in uh, France. And the Paris Effect, uh, he discovered, happened primarily with women, not exclusively, but primarily with women who had these dreams, these romantic dreams of visiting Paris, the city of light. And they came with these expectations that they would sit on a, on a sidewalk cafe eating crepes and drinking coffee and watching young lovers walk along the river. Young men with berets and pencil-thin mustaches <laughs> saying things like, Je mon chéri. <laughs> and women with their Louis Vuitton bags smelling of Chanel. And then they get to Paris and they find streets with cigarette butts all over the place and commuter trains that are packed and some of the Parisians even being rude that what they hoped for didn't deliver, what they longed for wasn't there. And when we grasp and we finally get what we hope for and it doesn't deliver, we might say with great disappointment the words of Job when he said, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Not because like Job, we've lost everything and it's hopeless, but because that which we hoped for, we gained and it was disappointing, it did not deliver. Isn't that what the front end of the book of Ecclesiastes is all about? If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, here's Solomon, the teacher, who has pursued and caught every mechanical rabbit there is to pursue and catch. And as a result of having caught all these mechanical rabbits, here's the conclusion of the matter. Meaningless, meaningless, it's all utterly meaningless. This disappointment, and could it be could it be because all these things we hope for will never satisfy? Could it be that Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian was right when he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that can never be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That all these things we think are gonna fulfill will ultimately disappoint us. If you'll allow me to paraphrase a scripture from the great prophet Isaiah, we all, like greyhounds, have gone astray, chasing mechanical rabbits down the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Made that one up myself. 
me and Isaiah, of course. I, I did use some of his scripture on that. Romans 5 says, hope does not disappoint. But what I've just pointed out is all these things we hope for and go after, they're going to disappoint. So there must be a hope that's different, which leads us back to the premise of this entire series, that there is a hope. As we've seen in 1 Peter chapter 1, again and again and again, and again today, verse 3, where Peter writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. This is this, this salvation that we have, forgiveness brought into the family of God, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this for the last five or six weeks is what we've been talking about. Because of what happened, what we celebrate on Easter, it wasn't just an event, it's a daily reality. Because Jesus is alive, then there is hope, and that hope is alive. Because Jesus dwells within us, our hope is within us in Christ, and we have that hope every single day. It's a living hope. We've been born into this. And it's not just what we hope for, it's who our hope is in. But what I find interesting, and Pastor Kip and Pastor Brian went a little bit further on this verse uh, a few weeks ago, is that Peter says, yes, it is who you hope in. That is true. That is your living hope for these days. But he also says there is something that we hope for. There is something that we hope for that will not disappoint. We've been given new birth into a living hope, this hope that we have in Christ. It's our hope in but we've also been given new birth and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is for an inheritance, one that will never diminish, one that will never go out of style, one that will never be outdated, one that is kept in heaven for us. We live in this reality, the living hope of Jesus. We live in that. But the resurrection reality is a now and a not yet. It's what we hope in. It's what we hope for. We just need to make sure we're hoping for the right thing. The problem is so often we hope for the wrong thing. And we have this hope now and in the not yet. Some of you have heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. He's a, he's a, a book writer. Um, he is one of the most masterful storytellers of all time. And he talks about not just what makes a good story uh, as far as a plot line, but something underneath that. He said, there is a kind of story that brings about unbelievable joy. And this kind of story, it doesn't matter who the, the characters are, they can be people, they can be animals, they can be monsters. What, it, this kind of story is the kind of story that brings about unbelievable joy and what these stories have in common is that there's this absolutely nearly impossible, hopeless situation and somewhere along the line in this story with this tension of this hopelessness, that victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. And he refers to that kind of a story as a eucatastrophe, a eucatastrophe. And the interesting thing about a eucatastrophe is that in these kind of stories, the hero or the, the, you know, the protagonist finds that maybe his or her weakness actually becomes his or her strength and this tragedy turns into triumph. And Tolkien would say there's a reason why we love these stories, not just because we want a story with a good ending, though that's it. He says there's something far deeper, far more meaningful, far more significant, even spiritual, of why we love these kinds of stories. 
And he says, it's because all of these kind of stories reflect the story. And what he would say is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he did say, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection is the ultimate eucatastrophe. The word eucatastrophe, I know it's a new word for many of us. The word eucatastrophe, literally translated, is joy story. You've heard of toy story. This is the joy story. And the resurrection is this impossible situation. Our, our Savior, our, our Messiah has died. He's buried. He's been crucified. Hopelessness. And in that weakness, it's turned around into strength and triumph is snatched from the jaws of defeat. And there is victory and there is joy. And he says, because of that story, there's this deep longing in, in every single one of us for that to be true. And even if we don't know the gospel, we love to hear there's something that reverberates, that, that, that strikes those strings within us, that that would be true. That there is this hope and there is joy that comes with it. So it's no wonder Paul writes in Romans 12, be joyful in hope. Because of the resurrection, we can live a life filled with joy, a life filled with hope because of what Jesus said. Because he is alive, he gives us hope now, and there's something we hope for in the not yet. This, this eucatastrophe uh, of the resurrection is not just a story that some author wrote. While it is a story that, that our God put into play, it's not just a, a fictional story. In fact, it's not just an event in history. While it is, it's not just solely an event in history. And it's not just a, a major part of doctrine and theology. While that's true, it's not just that. What we've discovered all along is that while this story is an event that actually happened, and it's a big part of our doctrine and theology, it's our personal reality as well. As long as we leave it out there in the ethereal, as long as we leave it out there in the, in the fictional, as long as we leave it out there in the cosmos, it's fine for what it is. But he says, no, this is something we own. Remember we looked at when Paul writes to, uh, in Colossians about this mystery. He says, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is very personal. It's very personal for us now. That's why I've been wanting us to recognize that the resurrection reality of Easter is something we live in every single day, including this day. It's who we hope in, but there's also what we hope for. So that no matter what we face today or tomorrow or next week or next year, we know that we have a living hope. In the 70s, I think it was, maybe late 60s even, but in the 70s, um, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote this song. Um, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future, then life is worth a living just because he lives. That's the resurrection reality. That's the hope now and the not yet. That's what we live in. It seems to me, and, and I don't have any empirical data to back this up, but it seems to me there's been a, a kind of a pendulum shift of emphasis, not altogether bad, but maybe over, over uh, swinging uh, in, the, in the Christian church. Uh, again, I was raised in the church. My dad was a pastor. Some of you were raised in church. And it seems like when I was younger, there was a lot of emphasis about, you know, accept Jesus, because then when you die, you get to go to heaven. And, and there was a lot of emphasis about, you know, the, the, you know after this life is over. 
And then it seemed like things started to swing and it, it needed to, I think. Because there was a part of this like, well, okay, well, I've got my ticket in heaven, I'll just live my life and then, then eternal life will start when I die. That's not the truth. Eternal life starts when we receive Jesus Christ. And so there was this swing and, and I mean, I saw it even here at Cornwall where it was like, but what about here and now? You know, that we are to bring the kingdom of God to bear on our earth and our reality now. We're to do kingdom work now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even now. That it's not just someday when you die. That we live in this reality and we do great things here, and that's good. And that swing needed to happen, and we need to continue to alter the spiritual landscape, to change lives, to, to bring the kingdom to bear on our earth. But I wonder if it came at the expense where we swung it too far to where now it's like, oh yeah, and then when you die, there's some other stuff, cool stuff that you get. Like we, we, we almost disregard that whole aspect. You see, when I was raised, that was like the, the focal point. I mean, we talked about it and we sang about it. That great getting up morning we would talk about. Not quite like that, I was white. But, <laughs> but we would sing these hymns. Some of you sang these hymns and it was all about, all about this, this hope that's the not yet. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open doors and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There's something drawing me beyond, like the salmon of Capistrano. Okay, never mind. None of you ever watched Dumb and Dumber. They're like the, the swallows of Capistrano. Like the sand, there's something that draws me. I can't, I, this isn't my home. My citizenship is somewhere else. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. No more crying there. No more dying there. We're going to see the king. You remember those songs, some of you? Some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I will fly away. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll scream and shout. Come on, I need a little help here. Even the chorus is swing low, sweet cherry, coming for to carry me home. This isn't home. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand, leads me to that promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. There was this emphasis on the not yet. I was raised in a little denomination. D. Otis Teasley wrote this hymn. Most of you have never even heard about it. But it, it, we would sing this one about, about this one who, who purchased me. And there was this line, I'm a happy pilgrim bound for glory land. I am singing and I hope to sing forever when before his throne eternal I shall stand. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There was this joy, this expectation, this excitement about the not yet. And I wonder if we pendulum swung so far that we say, oh yeah, and someday you'll die and you'll get to have eternity. And we miss that. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors and one of his less well-known books, one that didn't do real well. It's a good book, it just didn't do well. The title is Rumors of Another World. Warren Wearsby, uh, who just died a, a month ago, he said Christians, Christians live in the future tense. 
that there's this not yet hope, this what we hope for. You know, I've shared with you over the last year or two about our most senior saint, Helen Kristen. And I went to see her um, about every month recently. And my visit in April, I was talking with one of her daughters and she was just telling me great stories about Helen. She said, you know, the other day, Helen was sitting there and, and she said to Carolyn, she said, I'm, I'm ready to go. And Carolyn said, mother, do you need to go to the restroom? Do, we, do you need help? And she said, no, I'm ready to go meet Jesus. Friday afternoon at 1245, Helen Kristen breathed her last breath and then made her way to the home where her true citizenship is. She took her last breath and woke up in the presence of the one who knew her best and loved her most and said, come on home. Maybe we have missed out a little bit on the thoughts, the anticipation, the expectation of this not yet hope that we have. You see, in the New Testament, it wasn't like this morbid fixation on death, not some creepy fascination with the afterlife. It, it, was a, it was a healthy, true, realistic outlook on the way things are. I mean, Paul would write words like this, for me to live is Christ. That's my living hope. And he would follow it up with this word, these words. And to die, whoo, <laughs> to die is gain. You're like, whoa, the guy must have been really depressed. No, he had a clear picture of what was to come. He would say, we set our, our minds on things above, not on things below. When he writes to the church in, in Corinth, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That there was, yeah, not just this life, but there was something more. And we look at that, we, we look at the unseen, we see beyond, we know that there's a hope for us, there's a reality there. And I wonder, maybe, just maybe, for us who spend all our time looking at what is seen in the temporary, that we've lost sight of the unseen. And maybe we need to develop this eternal hyperopia, like to be able to see beyond. Hyperopia is a, is a uh, vision term. I was going to try to use the O word, but I can never get that right. Up, up. It's a vision term, ophthalmological. It's a vision term, and it means farsighted. That maybe we need to have our vision adjusted so we could see beyond, not just the here and now. 15 years ago, I turned 40, and all of those years, I know, I was just a child, still am. All of those years, I had always prided myself because of my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. I was the only one that didn't need corrective lenses. And someone said, you ought to go see the eye doctor. So I went at 40. Great, still didn't need corrective lenses. And I said to my eye doctor, I said, um, I make fun of all the people in our small group. Because when it comes to reading scripture, they're like, hey, let me borrow those. And they pass, you know, it's like, have this basket of cheater readers and they're all reading them. And I'm like, no problem here, anywhere you want, I got it. And my eye doctor looked at me and says, don't make fun of them anymore. <laughs> I said, why not? He says, you're 40, and your eyes will start changing very soon. I, I don't make fun of them anymore. 
In fact, over the next five years, my eyes changed a lot to where I found myself when I was about 45. There was a tipping point for me that I thought, I, I need to go back to that eye doctor because I was at Subway doing this, trying to make my order. And it's just right on the wall there. I wasn't able to see it. I'm thinking, I'm gonna starve to death if I don't get these eyes fixed. <laughs> so I went to see my doctor. Sure enough, he says, um, you, you got some issues here. We can correct that. And he did with contacts and glasses and such. And five years later, um, I said, well, what about, you know, I hear about this LASIK surgery. What about, what about that? He says, well, you're a candidate for it. And um, yeah, it doesn't seem like this might be a good option for you. So I went up to, you know, the laser place, the LASIK Pacific deal. And in the consultation, the, the doctor there, he said, we can fix this vision out here, but, but we won't be able to do anything about up close. You're going to lose some of that. And I said, that's fine. And, and they did the surgery, and, and I'm not, and this isn't like a paid advertisement, I'm not getting endorsed on this, but I don't wear corrective lenses, and I can, now I can see when you're asleep. <laughs> Before, I just thought you were in prayer. <laughs> now I see the drool, and, and my vision is so clear now, in Skagit, I see what you're doing, and at home, I see where you are, and put some clothes on, would you? I mean, my vision is very, very clear. And I wonder when it comes to this whole thing of, of hope that, that we need a, a spiritual LASIK surgery to see the unseen, to see that which is eternal, to see that hope that is kept for us in heaven, that we would be able to have that. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mirror Christianity, has a little tiny little section, maybe three, three or four pages tops, on hope. In that section, he says this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, it's not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. That we as followers after Christ, we are to be not only aware, but to be thinking about another world, another realm, in the future, the reality that is truly real. And you say, well, okay, well then, do we just like forget all this, quit, you know, quit mowing the lawn, quit worrying about retirement, quit brushing our teeth? No, 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 not at all. We need to live our life now through the lens and the perspective of eternity. In fact, Lewis would go on and he would say, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. And he talks about people who like abolished slavery because they were aware of what was really important, of what was really meaningful, of what was really significant, that caused them to live their life now differently. And you think about the, the things that are happening in social justice through Christians who are trying to, to take you know, human trafficking and select slavery, slavery and, and getting all that rid of those things because they know there's something beyond just here and now. And then Lewis throws this one in, he says, Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Look towards something beyond just our days here on this earth. Look toward the eternal. There's a, a passage in, in 1 Corinthians where Paul is confronting and defending some objections to the resurrection of Christ. Now, I, I preach portions of this probably every Easter. It's where he says, you know, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is useless. Then, then you're still dead in your sins. There, there's no hope. At the end of that, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
if Jesus just gives us some positive thinking for our days here on this earth, if it's just a short-lived optimism and then you die, if that's all there is to it, man, bummer for us. People ought to feel sorry for us if that's all our hope is. Begin to ask yourself, is this hope more than that or is it just for here and now? And with your answer to that, we will either celebrate or commiserate. If our hope is for this day and for these days and for this life and a hope beyond for the not yet, then we celebrate that. If hope is just for here and now and then we die and then we're hopeless, we commiserate over that. It's not a very exciting reality if there's not something beyond, if it's just trying to make it through this day. So Peter writes to these people, and I think what he wants them to see is, yes, Jesus is alive. Jesus will give you his hope today. But don't give up because there's something that you can look forward to. Because he talks about this this glorious inheritance, this glorious inheritance. Again, out of uh, of chapter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 4, verse 3, he says, you've been given new birth to a living hope, but also new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. We've been born into this, like we've been born into the family, so we've got this inheritance. And he says this inheritance, the beautiful thing about this inheritance is that the second law of thermodynamics has no effect on it. You know, one of the things I got as an early inheritance from my dad was his Harley-Davidson motorcycle. It was a gift, early inheritance, he said. 12 years later, the second law of thermodynamics has taken its toll on that bike. It's not worth as much as it used to be. It doesn't run as good as it used to run. It's not as cool as the newer ones. Dad. It's like it kind of faded a bit. It's spoiling. It's, and there will come a day when it's gone. But he says, listen, there's an inheritance that will not ever lose its value. It will not ever fall apart. I mean, isn't that why Jesus said, put yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Put it somewhere where it won't perish, where it won't spoil, where it won't fade, where, where the economy won't impact, where nothing can change it. And he says, and you've been born into this. Like, you're part of the family now. In Romans, it talks about how we've been adopted and how we're ingrafted branches and we get the full rights of being a part of this family. You've been born in, you get a part of the inheritance. In Romans, it says this amazing, if you just think about these words, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Just chew on that one for a while. This is your reality as a follower after Jesus. This is what is waiting for you. And he says, now let's be realistic. Our days here on this earth are not gonna always be easy, but there is something waiting for you. Because he says, you know, if we suffer, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, it might be rough now, but you just wait, you can't even imagine what you will have. You know, I mentioned uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and in The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where um, Sam and Frodo are going to be consumed by Mount Doom and all the flames. Anyway, they're, they're safe. And uh, Samwise awakes, awakens, and he sees, of all people, Gandalf. And he says to him, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then he follows up and he says, 
But then I thought I myself was dead. And he asks this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything that's bad, everything that's evil, everything that's sad, everything that's negative, is it gonna come untrue? And all of scripture points to the fact that that's exactly what's gonna happen. That Jesus will come and he will wipe every tear from their eye. He will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and all the suffering and all the pain and all the evil and all the destruction and everything that was bad will become untrue. He says, that's what we're waiting for. That's what we fix our eyes on. That's why we continue on. And, and Paul had such a clear picture of this. I mean, you just see it's like he's saying over and over again, I, I, dare, I dare to compare. I dare you to compare. Compare anything that this world has to offer, good or bad. Compare it to what is waiting for you. You take the very best this world has, the, the greatest things, the, the, the most wonderful things, the most difficult things, the most heartache-filled things, the, the punishment, the injustice. You take all that and compare it to what is waiting for you. It pales in comparison. I want to tell you, I believe that life is really good, especially on a day like today, early June, not too hot, not too cold, sunny in the Northwest, lawn is still green, haven't had to water. I mean, it's a good day. And to have things like laughter, I mean, not forced laughter, un unforced laughter to experience the love of friends and family and spouse and children and, and, and church, to, to experience that, to understand joy and to be able to engage in beauty, whether it's in art or in music or in the world that God has created and to have this beauty and the satisfaction that comes from a job well done and, and the pleasure and the achievements of our life and the meaning and the significance, all of these, this is a good life. But I think Paul would say, even at its very best, it's just a shadow of things to come. This doesn't even compare. I mean, he, he shows this in a spiritual realm. He shows it kind of this comparison of like the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Like the Old Covenant with all the animal sacrifices and all the laws and all the regulations and how all of that points to, it's just a shadow of something better that's coming. It points to the fulfillment in Jesus. And now there's grace and now there's forgiveness and now there's this life in him. And it's almost like saying, which would you rather have? That Old Testament or that New Testament? That Old Covenant or that New Covenant? The law or the grace of Jesus Christ? And he, he says it this way. For what was glorious, that Old Covenant, I mean, it was glorious, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away, all that old covenant, all the, the sacrificial system, all the laws that was fading away, if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? He, he says, think about this. Who would ever trade what we have in Jesus for what was commanded that pointed to Jesus? And if that's true on the spiritual realm, then I wonder, if our heavenly Father, from whom every good and perfect gift comes from, if that would not also be true in the earthly and physical realm, that all the goodness we experience here is just an appetizer, just a foretaste of what we will experience there. See, this whole idea, you know, heaven, harps, clouds, wings, a lot of white. You know what? 
I have zero desire to go to that heaven. Zero. I mean, could you imagine you get to the pearly gates, St. Peter, and you say, this it? I'm out. I mean, I'll head back to earth. I'll, I'll take the sorrows of earth. Seriously? You think God's gonna do that? You think he's gonna give us this earth and then say, and someday you'll regret that your life was only 106 years because now you got eternity in this hellhole up here. I mean, seriously, is God like that? Couldn't it be that the best we can experience here is just a foreshadowing of what is waiting for us there? All right, some of you are like, I'm out. Okay, let's go the other round then. What about the worst that this world has to offer? What about the suffering? What about the pain? What about the injustice? What about the hardship? What about all those things? Paul understood that. And he addressed that, he says, I consider our present suffering not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, not just to us and for us. It's not just you go and go, wow, this place is amazing. He said, all that pain, all that suffering, all those scars, all that hardship, they will be glorified in us, that God will not only redeem them, he will glorify them, and it will be amazing. That's why when he writes to the church in Corinth, to encourage them, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for, and look at this, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says, whatever you're going through, no matter how bad, you've just gotta understand it is very short-lived, and what you've got waiting for you, well, you'll, you'll just think that was nothing. All right, full disclosure here. I've never ever read a book by a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky, ever. He's a Russian novelist. In college, I was required to read his book, Crime and Punishment. It's the only book I bought Cliff's Notes for, the only time, never read it. So I just wanna be clear, I've never read anything from Fyodor Dostoevsky. Clear on that? He wrote another book called The Brothers uh, Karamazov. I've never read that book. I don't intend to read that book. Do not buy me that book. It's got like 800 pages. I, I have never read it, will never read it, don't plan to ever read it. I have read books by Timothy Keller, and Timothy Keller has read Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he quotes him, which is good. Not only does he quote a quote out of Brothers Karamazov, but he also explains it. Okay, okay, hold that thought. Picture this. Mama Robin comes down, pulls out this big worm, chews it up, digests it, and then gives it to baby Robin. That's what Timothy Keller does for me. <laughs> All right. He reads Fyodor Dostoevsky, chews it up, says about it, and then he gives it to me. Okay, so I wanna give to you, um, not because I read the book, not the quote, because it's, it's Ivan, one of the brothers, talking about suffering in this world. I wanna give you the chewed up Timothy Keller version of what actually happened in that quote. You follow me yet? This is a long way to get to this quote. All right, Keller writes this. He says, talking about Ivan, he says that he believes that at the end, the reality will be so astonishing, the joy will be so incredible, the fulfillment will be so amazing, that the most miserable life we feel, as St. Teresa of Avila was reputed to have said, the most miserable life we will feel like one night in a bad hotel. That all of our suffering will look back and say, oh, yeah, that was just one night in a bad hotel. 
look what we have. Look what God has given to us. Look at this inheritance. Look for eternity, this reality that will go on forever in the goodness and the glory of God, our true home. You know, the writer of Proverbs says this, there is surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, for five or six weeks, we've been talking about it's who we hope in. Paul says, but there is something that we do hope for. Peter says there's something we hope for. Jesus says there's something that we hope for. It's the hope of the now and the not yet. And there will come a day when we draw our last breath like Helen did at 1245 on Friday afternoon and we awake in the presence of Jesus and find that everything sad has become untrue. And at that moment, at that moment, we will realize that our deepest longing is fulfilled in our living hope. That the thing that satisfies us, that we always long to fill, will be filled by the very one that we lived in the presence of. That that great inheritance and that deepest satisfaction is Jesus himself. What if, what if we started living these days through the filter and the lens of eternity? What if we started having a picture of the unseen and the eternal and that home that will be waiting and that inheritance that is the not yet but is kept in heaven for us? What if we held on to that reality and lived to the glory of God here knowing that even the hardships he will turn into glorification in us there? And that the best we experience here we praise God for but recognize it's nothing compared to what is waiting, what's to come. And the worst we go through, knowing that someday as difficult as it is, we'll look back on it and say it was like one night in a bad hotel. And we have this. The hope of glory, the hope that's living, the hope now and not yet.